Good morning. Everybody say good morning, Lindsay. It's great to see everybody here this morning. Hey, my name is Ryan. If you're a guest, thanks for being here today. I don't like this. I, I want to be able, this is the section that needs it the most. <laughs> the section that our founding pastor is in needs to, got to get the love of that. So uh, if wherever you are, Simon, I moved your microphone. Don't be confused when you come back out. So good to see everybody. As I was saying, my name is Ryan, the lead pastor here at Crossroads. Wonderful to be together. If you are a guest this morning, I hope you will um, head back to the Fresh Perspective banner after our service this morning. We'd love to meet you. Um, if you're a guest today and you're like, that's a bit much, not stopping by there the first time, but you'd love to connect, ask some questions, learn a little bit more about Crossroads, about myself. I'd love to have coffee with you or happy hour, whichever is your hankering. Send me a text message. Inside your program, there's a welcome friends. And that's really written specifically for those of you that are kind of new guests, first time, all that good stuff. So uh, send me a text message. Love to get together. Uh, I know the holiday season's coming up, so, but that'll be good. Everybody got Thanksgiving plans? Good. Some of you don't. I understand. It's a different Thanksgiving for a lot of us. So we hold space for that. But hope you end up having a great week. Uh, we're in this series, Hope With Us, right? And we're just kind of talking about hope uh, throughout the holidays. And it's an interesting topic, a conversation uh, that we're having because some of us are filled with hope when it comes to the holiday season and some of us aren't filled with hope when it comes to the holiday season. And we kind of gave ourselves a little bit of space last week, right? So a little, little quick review, our anchor verse for this series, kind of the scripture verse that's holding us together over the next six or seven weeks or these six or seven weeks is this. It's found in Hebrews chapter six and it says, we have this hope, an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. And this idea that there can be a hope in God, there can be a hope that we hold that anchors our souls, that anchors the deepest parts of who we are. And last week we really talked about this definition of hope. And we said that hope is when we see a better future, when we discern the pathway there, and when we own our part in it, then we can say hope is here, right? There's these three elements to hope. And that's what the science of hope teaches us, that there is a goal, there's a pathway, and then there's a sense of agency, that I have something to do with it. When all those three are present, we have hope. And really, this series is about finding supercharged hope, right? Where we're taking the science of hope and the spirituality of hope, bringing them together and recognizing there's something very powerful in that equation, in that equation. So, let me ask you a question this week. This is the week I want to explore. This is the question I want to explore this week together is, does it even matter? Does hope really matter? Not just from the idea of pie in the sky dreams, but does it really make a difference? Like if you have hope, if you don't have hope, does it really matter? So that's the question I want to ask today. And so I want you to hold that in your head, maybe write it on your talk notes there. I think it's actually the title of the talk. I'm not sure. Um, but uh, I write the title in about six and a half milliseconds. So, so I know some preachers, they spend all this time on their titles. I'm like, I don't know, I'm call it hope. I don't have any idea. So, but that's the idea today. I want to tackle this big question. Does it even matter? Now, raise your hand up nice and high if you've heard the name um, uh, Bishop Desmond Tutu, if you've heard that name before. You might not know exactly exactly who he is, but you know the name, right? So who was Bishop Desmond Tutu? Let me ask, ask that question, right? So the, uh, he was a bishop in South Africa, and he was a bishop in the Anglican Church. He was a social rights activist, worked very, very hard, played a key role in the struggle against apartheid. He was born in 1931 there in South Africa, and he died just a few years ago in 2021. And, and, and Bishop Tutu became the first black archbishop of Cape Town. 
and the bishop of the Church of the Province of South Africa, which is now known as the Anglican Church in Southern Africa. He was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for his work, and the, they recognized his efforts and certainly their great importance in ending apartheid in South Africa. His role as a prominent leader in South Africa, all of these things made him become this like picture, this face for advocacy for reconciliation and human rights. Uh, and that was what really pushed him to be recognized by the Nobel committees. He promoted a nonviolent uh, idea of resistance to the, as, a, as an anti-apartheid movement. Um, he really was this beacon of hope, right? Um, and, and the idea that he was so focused on how do we end this great injustice and his resistance was nonviolent, right? And he really did play this role in dismantling of the apartheid policies of the South African government. And his life is kind of this intersection with the concepts of hope that we're talking about, right? And if we look at his life, if you look at his work, if you look at where he, he, he invested himself, how he invested himself, he does become this picture of hope. All right, as a religious leader speaking out against injustice and inequality, all the violation of human rights that he saw, he did become this symbol of hope. And he became a symbol of hope in kind of multiple ways, right? Um, after apartheid actually ended, he played a crucial role in what was called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And this commission was established to address the crimes that were committed during this era of apartheid. And part of that work was to bring victims, as well as those who perpetrated the crimes, bringing them together so that they could tell their stories, they could find forgiveness, they could seek amnesty for their action. And his leadership in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission really embodied the idea that if you acknowledge truth and if you seek forgiveness, these things can pave a way forward for a hopeful and unified future, right? There's that path. In his work, he emphasized the importance of love and forgiveness and compassion and encouraging people to look beyond the bitterness of the past and to work towards a better future, right? Having a vision for a better future. His spiritual teachings have resonated with people all over the planet. This message of hope and resilience in the face of deep, deep adversity. And even beyond South Africa, right, Bishop Dutu became this international symbol of hope uh, because of his stance on justice and human rights. He didn't just stop with apartheid, right? He spoke out on various global issues like poverty, the HIV and AIDS crisis, uh, a conflict resolution in general. He was an advocate beyond the borders of his own country, inspiring people all over the world to believe that it was possible to change that there could be positive change even in the, 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 the most horrible of circumstances. So when we think about someone's life, like a Bishop Desmond Tutu, we could say that he is an icon of hope. We need icons in our life. I know we're not Catholic, so some of you freak out when I use the word icon, but everybody take a nice deep breath with me. It's okay, right? Icons are just physical, physical symbols of something deeper, right? And the life of of Bishop Tutu, his work is really a physical icon of hope. And this is what he said hope is, his definition of hope. He said, hope is being able to see that there is light despite all the darkness. Despite all the darkness, you can still see the light. And as we ask this question, does it really matter? I think the first question we have to ask ourselves is where's the darkness in our own lives? Like where in your life have you or are you experiencing darkness? Where are the dimmest places of hope? Where is despair standing and knocking at the door of your heart, wanting to come in, 
You see, we all experience darkness in, in different areas, in different arenas of our lives, and at different times in our lives. Perhaps you're in a space right now where, where you could say, I'm one of those folks that's experiencing the darkness of trauma, of trauma. That there is this event or there's a circumstance in my past, in my life, that has resulted in physical or emotional or even life-threatening harm. And that event is having this lasting impact on my mental and my physical strength, my emotional health, my social or my spiritual well-being even. That's trauma. What I know about trauma is trauma has a really strong non-discrimination policy. <laughs> really lives by it. Equal opportunity employer. Trauma has no boundaries. Trauma doesn't care your age. It doesn't care your gender. It doesn't care your socioeconomic status. It doesn't care your race. It doesn't care your ethnicity. It doesn't care your sexual orientation. It doesn't care about any of those things. Trauma just knows, hey, there's a darkness in your past and I want to keep you there. <laughs> and I want to keep you there. Maybe you're experiencing the darkness of, of, of your body's betrayal. Have you ever heard this phrase, the betrayal of your body? Right? We all kind of go through this in some way, shape, or form. We trust our bodies throughout our lives to function in a certain way, right? And we say, this is how it should work. And our imaginations and our dreams and our goals say, my body should carry me and take me there. And then one day your body goes, nope. I don't think so. Right now I'm wearing a back brace. My back has said no the last few months. It's betraying me. Like I should be able to tie my shoes not in pain, right? I should be able to put shoes on and not have to think so critically about where do I put this hand and how do I, you know? It, that's a minor idea of the body's betrayal, but that's what we feel like. Cancer, aging, paralysis, mental degradation and deterioration. These are all forms of the body's betraying our trust in it. There's a darkness in the pain of no longer being able to fill in the blank. Maybe that's what you're experiencing, or maybe you have experienced, or you've watched someone experience that. We've all experienced the pain, and we kind of understand that maybe you're in a deep sense of this, like this idea of mental strain. Like the, your mentality, you're your, your just what you can take, the plate is full. If you're a student in here, high school, junior high, elementary school, college, post-doc, it doesn't matter. You understand like there's a strain in the struggle and strife of that academic life. And maybe you're just feeling overwhelmed mentally. If, you're a wor if you work, which most of us do in some form, whether it's working to raise families, whether it's working in a vocational setting, whatever it might be, we know that there is a darkness of pain that comes at times where we just feel overwhelmed by that strife and that struggle. Maybe it's the darkness and the pain of the mental anguish of, of a tension in a family that you're experiencing as we enter the holidays and you go, oh man, the Thanksgiving table is going to be difficult this year. It's going to be different. It's and there's a mental anguish, there's a mental fatigue. And you just kind of go, I don't know how I'm going to handle it. I don't know what it is, right? We, we know that experience. We know that darkness of not having any more answers. And here's the real tension, right? When hope, when hope grows dim enough, when the darkness sets in and grows thick enough in our lives, we're in danger of despair. Right? It's one thing to feel down. It's one thing to feel sad. It's one thing to have this sense of frustration. But despair can set in when the darkness gets thick. I remember the first time I uh, went, I was scuba diving in really like fairly deep water for me. 
of recreational divers. So I was in Missouri and we were in this lake and it went down a little over 100 feet and I had just gotten certified so I could go 100 feet deep. So I was like, this is amazing. So I'm going and I'm diving down and it's just getting cold and dark. That's all it is. And I remember getting down there at about 100 feet and I wanted my measurement to show that I was at 100 feet and I got down there and I hit 100 feet and I turned my flashlight off and I could not, I put my hand right in front, I couldn't see, I was like, where's the flashlight? Turn the flashlight back on. I'm in like a lake, I know there's nothing there. But I never experienced darkness so thick. Like where it was like, where is my hand? You know, it probably didn't help I was wearing a black glove, but you know, that's another. (laughs) The story's not as appealing when I say that, but you know. And I was diving with, a, a, with somebody and they were like right here, couldn't see them, you know, could, I mean, the darkness, that darkness that is just emotionally, spiritually debilitating, it's exhausting, panic, shame, that's despair, hopelessness, true to its name, comes in and convinces us that there's no path forward, there's no point in trying, I have no agency, I have no vision, and, and, and we just feel this sense of misery and we can't alleviate it. Despair, the word comes from a Latin word that means to be without hope. And this idea in religious circles, unfortunately, is often thought of as a great moral failure. To be in a space of hopelessness is oftentimes seen as you are failing in your faith, that you have no faith, you're not trusting God. And sometimes that despair even lends to suicide. And in religious circles, that's often seen as like, oh, it's the worst thing anybody. And and so it becomes this moral kind of sense of who we are. And if I can take a moment to just talk about how dangerous that is, that we assume and we think that the idea of hopelessness and despair is somehow a moral choice that we're making, that fear and pain and despair being a lack of strength. And where does that come from? It comes from wonderful, beautiful little things that we say like, God will never give you more than you can handle. And then all of a sudden, if we say that long enough to ourselves, we go, what's wrong with me? Do I not trust God? Doctor, uh, there's a, 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 a doctor, Father Ron Rollinger, R- Rossheiser, excuse me, he is a Catholic theologian, and he was writing on despair and suicide. And I think he just beautifully said it when he wrote this. He said, when someone is so crushed in spirit by circumstances, by unfairness, by cruelty, by sickness, pain, accident, or by another person's sin, right? When we're so crushed by that, so as to be unable to find seeds of hope inside ourselves. Is this really a moral choice? Is this really a moral failure, he writes? And he says, there's an old saying that God doesn't send us more than we can handle. He says, I accept that, but I love what he says here. He says, God never sends us more than we can handle, but circumstance, accident, oppression, and nature sometimes do. And he says, there's a healthy iconoclasm in the title of Kate Ballard's book. If you haven't read it, you should read it called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. (laughs) And and the truth is the idea of what what he's saying is we have to be really, really careful with pious expressions like God will never give us more than we can handle. God never sends things our way. All of these things because they don't take into account our reality. They don't take into account that there are things that come to us that God never sent that God never brought into our lives, but they are there. And if we're not careful, those theological quips that we might say to someone or we might say to ourselves as if they're gonna give us more hope, they actually produce more despair and they diminish hope instead of increasing hope. Now, when I think about that idea of living in a sense of despair, I, I think of our spiritual ancestors. 
I think about people like the ancient Israelites where our scriptures come from. I think about the people who were living in, uh, in ancient Israel in the first century under oppression. They lived in a time of history. They didn't have vaccinations. Penicillin wasn't there, right? They lived in a space of war and famine and disease, foreign occupation. They lived every day at this level of despair where there is no hope. And so we shouldn't be surprised that our spiritual ancestors instinctively and experientially understood and that hope was essential to survival, both physically and spiritually. The New Revised Standard Version, the updated edition translation of the Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament uses the word hope 201 times. 200 times, outdone by words like peace and love. (laughs) But there's something in the writing of our sacred text where hope continually emerges within the mind of antiquity that says, I have to have this hope. We can see that the psalmist, right? We have this great collection of prayers and, and ancient poems that carried people through difficult seasons. And the psalmist understood that there is a hope that affects our happiness. Didn't have a study, didn't have a longitudinal study, didn't have a quantitative data, no qualitative data on it, just an experience. In Psalm 146, verses five and six says, happy are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. This God who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. Right, the psalmist is saying, my understanding of God, the way I relate to the divine, the way I have named God, our God, our tribal God, like when my hope is there, there's happiness. There's a belief system that holds it. We're talking ancient world. And then you have the Apostle Paul who's writing in the first century. He's writing to the Romans, right? Living in the height of the emperor cult, these Roman Christians that are following Jesus, trying to make sense of it all, trying to understand God with all of their Greco-Roman background and, and philosophy and putting it all together. Paul comes along a few hundred years after the Psalms. And Paul knew a hope that affected confidence, I love this passage in Romans chapter eight, verse 24, where Paul says, for by hope we were saved. Isn't that great? That there's a salvation experience in hope. He says, now hope that is seen is not hope, right? There's something about you're not there yet, right? The idea of a future vision that's necessary for hope, right? You'd think Paul had taken a positive psychology course and he didn't. that he had studied hope, but he just said, if you can see it, it's not for what we, for, for who hopes for what one already sees. No, he says, there's a salvation, there's a rescue in our lives. And it's not from God or hell, it's from Tuesday. <laughs> now, I, I get that Paul's dealing with monstrous like thoughts on the end of the world, but the beauty of our scriptures is that they last, they're living, they endure. And that we really are saved from Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday. We're saved from the pink slip. We're saved from despair of our job. We're saved from the despair of a family member who is no longer with us. We're saved from despair through hope. It's powerful. And Paul also knew a hope and had a hope that affected peace. I'm a big fan of peace. I don't know if you know that or not. I think peace is worth it. That was free. We'll talk about that later. I think peace is worth living our lives for. I think peace is worth dying for. 
I think that's why Jesus came, and I think, unfortunately, that was why we killed him, because we didn't want peace Jesus' way. But peace is this powerful reality. Romans chapter 15, later in that letter to the Romans, Paul says, may the God of hope, I love that, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. That there's something about existing in this God that's represented in Jesus that brings joy and peace so that you may abound in what? Hope. It's kind of a circular argument, Paul, but we'll go with it, right? This God of hope, but it is. If you abide in this God, if every day of your life is grounded in the mystery of this God revealed in Jesus, there is joy and hope that can fill you by the power of the Holy Spirit. And again, we're, we're, these are great mysteries. Like Holy Spirit, just another word for living in the divine, living in God, the presence of God, the expectation of the reality. So don't miss this. When we ask the question, does hope matter? And you think about the darkness that we experience and that our friends experience and that our families experience and even the people we don't like experience. There's something powerful in knowing that hope in God is a spiritual pathway to happiness, confidence, and peace. What we might call well-being or vitality. That there is a hope in God that produces and, and contributes to our happiness, our peace, and our confidence. Now, what do we mean when we say hope in God? Well, I think there's a couple ways to think about this, right? We can take the idea of hope, right? The science of hope that says you gotta have a goal, a pathway, and a sense of agency. Then you have hope. And you take that and you smash it into your faith. And you say, as I determine my future, as I think about the path to get there, and as I know that I can do it, I trust that God is with me. And that's having hope in God, right? So I'm living and moving and having my being, I'm having my hope in the sense that God, my faith in God, that God is a reality, is a loving presence, is a personal presence that I can live in, right, is with me, guiding, offering wisdom, offering strength, helping, encouraging, all those things. And then there's also a hope in God that comes from like this idea of purposefulness and meaning to the, like, the theological significance of my life, right? The goal of a faithful life is that, you know what? This God who is a source of strength can be a, can be a source of strength of in, in the pain of my darkness. That God itself, right, can illuminate the darkness of my world. And, and the path that I get there, right, the path to experiencing this God is the peacemaking path of Jesus, right? Where Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Remember who Jesus is talking to there? That's not a statement of exclusion. It's actually a statement of inclusion. It's a statement of this, this narrow way that we don't choose. <laughs> we don't choose forgiveness and mercy and justice and inclusion. Those are difficult things. That is a narrow path of love. And Jesus is saying, this is the universal path to experiencing God. And when we live in that path, right, there's strength for us because our lives are filled with purpose and meaning beyond the circumstances. And so we, we know that we have agency in that, right? We know I can choose to forgive. I can choose to show mercy. I can choose to be in community with others like we're doing right now, whether you're online or in person or listening on demand, you're participating in a sense of community. You can read, you can learn, you can grow, you can listen to podcasts. Like there's all these ways. You can pray, you can serve, you can give. Again, peace is worth it. We'll get to that later. I'm just sowing some seeds, just sowing some seeds. Right, I can actually make intentional choices 
to be in relationship with what Paul says is this Holy Spirit. I can actually make choices to do that. I can, I can focus my heart and my life. I can make simple steps. We, call, we have this way of peace. It's kind of a peacemaking 201. It's some commitments that we can make in our everyday normal lives to live and walk in it. And here's what's so powerful, right? Because we're talking about the spirituality of hope and the science of hope. The science of hope bears witness to what our spiritual ancestors knew in their struggle. You know that struggle is one of the greatest types and ways of knowing. I mean, there's just certain things you can't know without the struggle. And in their struggle, they knew the power of hope. And the science is now showing it. There's been over 2,000, say that with me, 2,000. I said with me, not after me, but that's okay. I'm just kidding. We're getting a little too serious there. I had to snap you out of it, right? 2,000 published studies on hope. And you know what? Every single one, every single one of these studies of hope has said is that the best predictor of well-being compared to any other measures of trauma recovery is what do you think? Hope. You got the assignment. 2,000 studies looking at trauma recovery, the single greatest measurement for well-being in trauma recovery is hope. It is the single best predictor when it comes to things like physical and spiritual and mental well-being. So does it matter in everyday normal life? Well, the science says yes. Our spiritual ancestors say yes, it matters. And here's why. Here's what the science tells us. Hope reduces pain. Y'all ever have pain in your life? Anybody? No? Oh, that kind of church. I didn't realize. <laughs> no, I know. Pain. And here's the fascinating thing about hope. You might say, well, hope is just about spiritual pain. No, 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 no. You look at the studies, when it comes to physical pain, a measure, if your hope is rising, if you have a rising hope, and they test this, they study the hope and how, how high a sense of hope you have, your physical pain decreases, right? So it's not, just our, it's not just our emotional or psychological pain, but hope actually reduces physical pain as well. Hope buffers the effects, right, of adversity and of stress in our lives. Y'all ever feel stress? Like, Ryan, Thanksgiving is next week. Of course I feel stressed. What a dumb question. Totally get it, right? So what happens with hope? High hope people, right? High, people have a high hope quotient, let's say. They are less likely to experience the physical and mental side effects of stress. Hopeful people are better at self-regulating. They can regulate their emotions, their thoughts, their behaviors as they pursue their goals in life. Hopeful people are less likely, nobody does this in here, I know, so this is just wasted time. Text somebody, check your fantasy football lineup, but don't listen to me right now because this is so useless. Hopeful people are actually people, they are less likely to ruminate on their past. And I know nobody does that. Nobody sits here and goes, if only I would have, or I wish I could have, or why didn't I? They experience reduced levels of depression. In other words, hope is like a superfood right? A superfood for the fruits of the spirit in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. They just flourish. It's like fertilizer for it, right? In the midst of disappointment. It's powerful. I love this. Hope is a catalyst for adaptive behaviors. Adaptive behaviors. How many of you have ever set a goal and then a roadblock came and hit that goal? Let's take whatever it might be. Could be a, a physical goal, could be a, 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 an academic goal, and then something happens. What, what do you do? Do you just give up? Well, some people we do. We're like, well, 
you know, maybe it's that great of a barrier. You just can't do it. I get it. But here's the thing. Hopeful people, they learn how to regoal. Right? Regoal. They're not distracted. Okay, like I had this goal, but now I'm going to have to regoal because there's this new circumstance. There's this new reality. So I've got to find a new pathway. And then they will more often successfully achieve those modified goals because they can adapt. They can make those slight changes in their goals and then hit them. You know, hope can be learned. That's powerful for you every day. This idea that it's not just like you wake up and are hopeful. There are strategies, there are interventions in our lives that we can make so that we can move the needle of hope. We can take our hope bucket and fill it up. And here's what I think is one of the most powerful things about hope, and I bet you've experienced this because I know I have in my life, is that hope can be borrowed. You can borrow hope. Because the truth is, and we're going to talk more about this next week, so we go through circumstances in life where we don't need hope. We need to feel hopeless because we'll short-circuit our pain and we'll short-circuit our healing with, with wildly, you know, dismissive sentiments. But what we need in that time is borrowed hope. Professor Dennis Sleeby said this, sometimes we have to lend hope to others until they can find it for themselves. You wanna know why this is important? Why, why being a part of a community is important? Because this is a, 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 just a bank of hope. That sometimes you don't have the hope to sing, let the person sing for you. Sometimes you don't have the hope to, to, to think through what's next. You just let the person walk with you. Like that's the beauty of community. That's the beauty of a faith-filled place that says we're not alone. So you're sitting there going, Brian, that's awesome. Hope can reduce pain and hope can help me create adaptive behaviors. And yes, I believe hope matters, but, but Ryan, how do I do it? How do I grow in resilience? And how do I get rising hope in my life? Well, you have to come back next week for that. <laughs> and over the next few weeks, we're gonna do this. We're gonna take an exploration through the holidays. And so what are those things that we can do in our lives to grow hope? And we're gonna start with gratitude. And I'm not making that up just because it's Thanksgiving weekend. All the science, all the data, scripture tells us that gratitude is a significant marker in people who have rising hope. And so we're going to have communion this morning. And we're going to come to communion, hopefully with this sense that this matters because darkness hits our lives. And maybe you don't sense a, a space of darkness in your own heart, in your own life. You're just in that season where it's like, man, everything is rock and roll and that's awesome. And you are filled with hope. And maybe you need to just lend some people some hope in the room. Lend some hope to those around you. Let your hope give you enough strength to just be with people in their pain and in their darkness. And so as we receive communion this morning, some thoughts to think about. What is it that God's inviting you into in this moment of, does hope really matter? Does hope really matter in my life? Do, do I think of it this way? Am I proactive in it? Well, I want to encourage you to maybe God's just inviting you to connect next week. I know it's Thanksgiving week and people are traveling, all that good stuff, but connect either being here or listening in, tuning in to just ask the question of how does gratitude roll into this? And what are some very simple things that I can do in my life to develop gratitude? Maybe God's inviting you to just bring hope to those that are living with food and housing insecurity. And you can do that by just ringing a bell once a week for the next four or five weeks. Could you imagine? You can stand there for two hours, ring a bell, and you can provide food for a family for a month just from doing this. 
You didn't have to put any money in there. I mean, I encourage you to, you know, give people dirty looks that walk by that don't. That's what I do. I'm like, really, BMW? Nothing. Huh, interesting. Hey, Lexus, this door over here. Come on. Nice try, SUV. Gas guzzler. Cost 125 bucks to fill that thing up. Mm-hmm, right here. They don't like it when I do that, but I feel like my can is pretty full. I'm not there to make friends. I'm there to feed people. <laughs> so, everybody that laughed at that joke, you're going to go sign up for two hours once a week. Not once during the holiday. Come on, don't give me that. Once a week, find two hours. Go out there and ring a bell. Let's feed hungry people. Let's get some warmth to folks. These folks are experts at that. They're our partners. Salvation Army, they're experts at this. And what we can do is help raise the money for that without giving a penny. We just give some time. And if you can't ring a bell, right, you just stand there. It's fine. Or sit there. Because I can't stand for two hours. Neither can I. I'm going to sit. Are you kidding me? That's nonsense. You all that stand for two hours. No way. I'm just going to sit there. That brings hope. That's, that's, a, that's offering people hope, letting them borrow some of yours. And if you can't do it every week, do it once. Do it a couple times. And just lend that hope to somebody at work. Just give it away. Band's going to lead us in a song while we have communion. If you'll stand with me, if you're able to. If you're at your tables, your communion's at the table. You don't... You don't have to walk anywhere if you don't want to stand, but they're going to sing this song called, Oh, Come All You Unfaithful. (laughs) Faithfulness is a high bar these days. (laughs) And it presents oftentimes this idea of who's welcome at the table. But this song reminds us that, that faithfulness is not the qualification. That when we can't sing, when we can't hope, when we can't obey, when we can't give when we can't, for whatever reasons, we are welcome to come in that space, in that condition, and receive the same exact measure of grace and love and hope as the person who's in a space to sing, to give, to obey. And that's the beauty and the non-discriminatory policy of the divine. It is as indiscriminatory as despair, but far more powerful. And so everyone is welcome at these tables. Uh, look around. There's a few that you can serve yourself. The bread and the cup are rep- the, the bread and the juice are simply representatives of the love of God expressed in the person of Jesus. The metaphor can shift and move and change, but the root of it is all the same: that the divine is with us, suffering alongside of us, present in our successes and in our failures equally, loving equally, strengthening equally. So the body of Christ broken for you, no matter what you believe, no matter what you hold to, is broken for you and is shed for you along with all 8 billion people on the planet. You are welcome to the table, whether you see yourself as faithful or unfaithful today. So we'll sing a couple of songs, reflect on what God is doing in our hearts and in our lives this morning. And then I'll share just a few moments about our peace is worth it, give you a blessing and get you out of here. But Right now, let's just take a moment to breathe and be together in God's presence.